Brothers and sisters, we are living in a time of great seismic shifts in the history of Christendom here in the West. It's a time, and I think we all can sense it, we all feel it, we are seeing things out there, where standing with and standing for Christ will prove costly to his followers. We sense some of that persecution, we sense some of that hostility and opposition, but Buckle your seatbelts. It's about to get worse. The thing we must never forget, though, even though we are walking through a time like that in our day and age, is that this is not a unique experience for the church of Jesus Christ. It is not unique for any of the saints. And it's not unique to our, just our time and place in human history. Followers of Jesus Christ throughout the ages have been tempted as we might be tempted now, tempted to shrink back from proclaiming the gospel, tempted to maybe cower in silence so as not to be marginalized, not to be canceled, not to be persecuted, not to be made fun of. We could probably all think of a time in our own lives, in our walk with the Lord, where maybe we've had uh, a clear opportunity to take a stand for Jesus Christ. A clear opportunity to share the gospel with others. And instead of doing that, instead of courageously proclaiming the good news, we kept our mouth shut. We were too scared to be outed as a Christian. Maybe to make fun of. We wanted to to go along, to get along, to be nice, to fit in. And the pressure was just too much for us. Our text today is going to be very important for us. In light of those things. Important for every single one of us who are living in a day and age of increasing hostility to the gospel. For how are we to fulfill our duty to the gospel, which we'll talk about today, when it has become challenging to do so. Let's turn to God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-14. through 14. Hear the words of the living God. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony About our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. These are the words of the Lord. As we began our study in 2 Timothy last week, we looked at Paul's exhortation to Timothy. And that exhortation was to fan into flame the gift that had been given to Timothy. A gift that was given to him so that he could discharge the ministry that was entrusted 
to him. Paul, the apostle of the Lord, whom at the time of the writing of one of the last of his recorded letters, the very last of his recorded letters, was chained in in a dark and dank and musty and smelly dungeon in Rome. He's in chains for the gospel. He's in chains for his allegiance to Jesus Christ, for his stand for Jesus Christ. And he's writing this letter to his spiritual son in the faith to encourage him. And he's doing that chained in prison, knowing that his death, his execution, was imminent. And he starts this letter by taking a short trip down memory lane. He writes to Timothy, telling him that he he recalls to mind, he is remembering his constant prayer for Timothy. He's constantly and continually lifting him up before the Lord. He remembers their last parting where where there were tears shed. There was hugging. There was sobbing. There was crying because they were going to be separated. And Paul longed to see Timothy again. He's reminded of Timothy's sincere faith. A sincere faith that was passed on to him. But also that he embraced for himself. Having trusted Christ Jesus. But a sincere faith that was also present in his grandmother. And his mother, and Paul says he's sure, is in Timothy's life, a genuine faith. So he writes to him, for this reason, on account of these things, Timothy, that have indirectly shaped your life, exercise that gift that was given to you. Given to you by God for the ministry he called you to. And how was Timothy able to do that? How was he able to exercise that? Well, he tells them. It's going to be by the Spirit of God, by the power of God. Because God had given Timothy not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. A spirit of love and self-control. By Timothy's reliance and dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit, he would be able to exercise that gift. Now this letter has a movement in the opening here. And it shifts From that exhortation now to Timothy's duty in relation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, it begins with that conjunctive adverb, therefore. When we read that in scripture, we know it's, it's, it's not just pointing us to what's coming next. It is directly connected to that idea, that point, that exhortation that came right before it. Therefore, Timothy... Because you have the Holy Spirit, a spirit of power, love, and self-control, here's your duty to the gospel. And we're going to look at the three main exhortation, charges, commands given to Timothy. But don't just read these as charges and the duty of Timothy alone, because remember, this letter's for the church. This letter comes to us by extension, this this. this These commands, these exhortations entrusted to Timothy have now been passed on through successive generations of the church and they have come to us now. We cannot ignore them. We cannot dismiss them. We cannot diminish them. They are for us. These are the very duties you and I, brothers and sisters, have to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the first of these. It's our duty to courageously stand for The gospel. He says, therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Do not be ashamed. Timothy, like each and every one of us, must testify of Jesus Christ. Must bear witness to Christ. 
We're to testify of Christ's perfect, sinless life. You and I are to proclaim and preach the foolishness of the cross. We're to testify of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The return of Christ. His final judgment. Timothy lived in a time in his day and age there in Ephesus, a pagan city. He had opposition from without and he had opposition from within. He had false teachers who were contradicting the teachings of the gospel. Who were muddying it up, distorting it. Preaching false and different doctrines that Timothy now had to confront. Timothy was, by all accounts from what we see in scripture here, timid. There was some insecurity. There was, there was a feeling in Timothy that he was probably too big to the task. There were shoes too big for him to fill. And here is now Paul, the spiritual father in the faith, exhorting him and encouraging him. He must not be afraid. He must not be ashamed of the gospel. But that command is not new for a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's the very thing that Jesus said to his disciples in John, in John's gospel, I'm sorry, in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, verse 38. Jesus says to his disciples, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. What a sobering thing for his disciples to have heard. And for sure they lived in adulterous and wicked and sinful generation. And I think you and I can say we live in an adulterous and sinful and wicked generation today. That command, that is for us. That warning is for us. If we are ashamed of Christ and His words, then He'll be ashamed of us. Timothy, like every Christian, is tempted to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord We have exhortations like this because you and I are tempted to be ashamed. You and I are prone to misplaced shame. Well, how? Well, Jesus says it there. We could be ashamed of Him. We could be ashamed of Christ. As I said, we've all probably been in a setting where we had the opportunity to testify of Christ and we didn't. Because of fear of man, we remained silent. I can think of a number of times in my Christian walk where things were happening maybe in the workplace or maybe with some close friends who were unbelievers and they said things or did things and and I just, I didn't want to appear different. I didn't want to offend them. I, I wanted them not to think ill of me and so I kept my mouth shut. I didn't testify of Christ. We don't want to appear foolish to others, especially those we work with or are close to us or our family members. We don't want them to think of us as maybe crazy religious fanatics. Right? Some of you might have family members who that's exactly what they think about you. But we can be ashamed of Christ in so many ways. As I was thinking about the gospel, I'm thinking of how many ways the gospel sounds absolutely crazy to the world. Think about what we tell the people about Jesus what it is that we're preaching, what it is that we're proclaiming, that God came in the flesh, that Christ is the Son of God, that He's the promised Messiah. 
Part of the gospel is that he left the glories of heaven, took on human flesh. But why? To rescue us from our sin and rebellion because we are helpless to save ourselves from the wrath of God that is upon us. We can be ashamed of proclaiming that Christ died a substitutionary death on the cross in our place. It sounds absolutely insane. The cross was an object of scandal. It was an object of scorn in that first century world of the New Testament. Jews and Gentiles alike viewed crucifixion with incredible scorn, incredible disdain. It was an object of dishonor, a symbol of disgrace. This torturous death was reserved for the worst of criminals. To experience punishment and death by crucifixion meant that you were the dregs of society. You were the the vilest of the vilest. To the Jews, the crucified person was seen as someone cursed by God. To the Gentiles, the crucified person was viewed with the utmost contempt. So could you imagine here these these early Christians coming out and, and preaching the cross of Christ? Preaching about a crucified king? How ridiculous that must have sounded to these first century people, to Jews and to Gentiles. Christ, the King, was crucified on a cross. But what does Paul come preaching? 1 Corinthians 1, he comes preaching, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. Christ crucified, that was the centerpiece of the gospel, the centerpiece of Paul's preaching of Christ. Offensive to Jews, offensive to Gentiles alike. They didn't want to hear about it. They didn't want to hear about the supposed Messiah hung on a cross to die for humanity. Christ crucified. I promise you, Paul was not preaching some seeker-sensitive message. He wasn't trying to to pacify the sensibilities of the Jews and the Gentiles with their supposed wisdom who thought this was folly and tried to water it down and, and just kind of smooth this over like it wasn't as horrific as it actually was. He wasn't preaching a seeker sensitive gospel and you and I must not either. We cannot be ashamed to preach Christ crucified. Though the world will see it as foolish. Though the world may think we are mad and have lost our minds. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God to those who are being saved. That was Paul's confidence as he went out and preached Christ crucified. That those who are to be saved, they didn't see that as foolishness. Salvation came to them. Those who are perishing, these guys are idiots. What fools to be preaching this thing. Even if the world were to ridicule us and mock us and shame us or persecute us, make us look like fools, we must be willing to be fools for Christ's sakes, brothers and sisters. We need to be willing to be on the receiving end of the hatred of the world because there is no shame in that for a follower of Jesus Christ. It is honor and it is glory to God. So we can be tempted to be ashamed of Christ. 
Those things that the gospel proclaims about Christ. Like Jesus said, those who are ashamed not only of Christ, but also of his words. We might be tempted to be ashamed of Christ's words, especially in the hard sayings of Christ. How many of us maybe have had conversations with believers and they, they mention some of those hard things that Jesus says. Not everything Jesus said was nice, right? See, because the world hates the true teachings of Christ. Not the nice teachings of Christ. The world wants and loves tree-hugging, you know, climate, you know, conscious, peace-loving Jesus. The Jesus of love your neighbor as yourself. They love the Jesus that they think is okay with you making whatever lifestyle choice you want to make. The Jesus that says, hey, you can have whatever truth you want. Speak your truth. They love that Jesus. The problem with that Jesus is... It's not the real Jesus. It's not the Jesus of Scripture. Peaceful, chill, nice guy, peace pipe smoking Jesus would not have been crucified, brothers and sisters. He would have been embraced and loved and heralded. His message offended many, though. His message caused many of his followers, followers to stop following him. John 6, we have this incredible account. Jesus says some really hard things there. And what does it say? Almost all of his disciples abandoned him that day. They left him. On account of his message and claims, he was hung on a cross. Many Christians today, many preachers try to soften the words of Christ so as not to offend. They don't speak of sin. They don't speak of final judgment. They're ashamed of the words of Christ. Do not be ashamed of the words of Christ, brothers and sisters. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Do not be ashamed of his words. Do not be ashamed of Christ. But the last thing that we might be tempted to be ashamed of is to be ashamed of Christ's people. It's interesting here. In this exhortation to Timothy, he's saying, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And he says, hey, and don't be ashamed of me either. A prisoner of the Lord. Why does he say that? Well, for sure, there were a lot of believers there in Asia who were ashamed of Paul's chains. They're ashamed of his suffering. That's why they abandoned him. Many were beginning to say, look at the suffering that Paul is going through. Look at his imprisonment. What is that a sign of? If not that he can't be a true apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't have the favor of God. The Holy Spirit can't be with him. Look what, he, look what he's going through. Man, he's enchained. If he was a true apostle of Christ, he would have the power to free himself from these things. So they were ashamed of his suffering, ashamed of his imprisonment. Just following this passage here, he mentions two individuals. Well, he says, almost all in Asia deserted me among among whom were also Philetus and Hermogenes. And we don't know who they were, but they were obviously some influential believers or Christians, maybe elders there at the church in Ephesus or in one of the churches, and they abandoned Paul. They were ashamed of his chain. But Timothy was not to be ashamed of Paul's predicament. Many of us sometimes are ashamed of God's people, some of God's people. Some of the people in the body of Christ, right? We're embarrassed of them. 
You may have some members of your own family that maybe you're embarrassed of. Someone's name might be popping up into your mind right now. That crazy sibling or aunt or uncle or grandparent. Maybe there's a friend and they just say the wildest things. They have the kookiest of theories and conspiracies, right? And, and you're like, when they start bringing things up, like you kind of recoil in a little bit of embarrassment and shame. There's some really weird, weird members in the family of God, aren't there? Now, don't agree too loudly. You might be one of them. You might be embarrassed of like the street preachers. You ever go around, drive around and, or walk in an area and there's a guy out on the street just preaching the gospel and maybe they're not preaching it in a way you like for them to preach it. Maybe it sounds kind of harsh for you. Maybe they're holding up some signs, passing out some tracts and you might be like, ooh, I don't know if I would do it that way. There's a little bit of secondhand embarrassment there. You might be more maybe ashamed or embarrassed of some of the more fundamentalist of family members in the body of Christ. Maybe ashamed of some of those who mix their faith a lot with uh, their love of country. I could think of during the COVID hysteria, right? How many believers openly expressed their embarrassment of those other believers who were not going along with maybe the, the mandates or uh, maybe they said, well, they're not obeying Caesar. They're not obeying those in authority over them. And hey, we're, we don't agree with them. We're kind of embarrassed that they're acting this way, right? It's a number of people in the body of Christ that maybe you and I uh, don't have an affinity with that we might have some shame of or embarrassment of. Certainly the more cowardly Christians oftentimes feel ashamed of their brothers and sisters who take courageous stands for Christ. I have found that to be the case many times when I've been ashamed of someone who was being really bold. It was exposing some cowardice in my own heart, some lack of courage or boldness there. The temptation to be ashamed of the testimony of Christ, of his words, or of his people is strong. The pressure to remain silent, the pressure to not be offensive or to be seen as offensive, to not want to be called out, not be canceled, it's strong, it's fierce. The cultural winds in our day have shifted such that that this is a time that taking a stand for Christ will prove to be costly. But how do we overcome that? How can we not be ashamed when the temptation is that strong? Well, he tells us here. The way we overcome and take a courageous stand for Christ and his gospel is by the power of God. It's by the power of God. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same way Timothy is to exercise the gift given to him by the power of God, by the Spirit of God, is the same way you and I can take a courageous stand for Christ. This is what Paul knew. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Yeah, those, some of those Jews, yeah, it would be a stumbling block. To some of those Gentiles, yes, they would see it as folly. But the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you believe that? If we really believe that, 
Shame would be the last thing on our mind as it concerns the gospel. As it concerns Christ and his word and the people of God. That's why you and I must herald the good news. We are the messengers, God's chosen instruments to communicate his glorious gospel. And we're to do it unashamedly. Why? Because God's power to save is manifested through the foolishness of the preaching of the cross of Christ. That was Paul's confidence. Yeah, he got made fun of a lot. Oh, and it was worse than that. He was beaten. They threw rocks at him. They threw him in jail. He writes in verse 11 that it was on account of the gospel that he was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. He was a herald of this good news. He was to transmit the good news, the teachings of Christ. He was appointed. And as we've already said, he didn't appoint himself an apostle. He didn't appoint himself a preacher. The other apostles didn't appoint him. He was appointed by the purpose of God, by command of God, by the plan of God. Now, there are no apostles today. No one here can claim to be an apostle. And even if someone out there claims to be an apostle, they're not an apostle like this. There is no new revelation. There is no addition to the gospel that can be made. There is no subtraction from the gospel that can be made. It was only to Christ's apostle that this message was entrusted. And it was only to them who were appointed by Christ to now faithfully transmit that. To the church of Jesus Christ. And though we are not apostles. We know we are called to be heralds of the good news. Preachers and teachers of the good news. That has been passed down to us. And each of us needs to be faithful. To be a witness and testify to the good news of Jesus Christ. Trusting not in ourselves. Trusting in God's power to do what he said he will do. Bring salvation to sinners. It is our duty, brothers and sisters, to courageously stand for Christ. To courageously stand for His gospel. But that's not the only duty we have. We also have a duty to share in suffering for the gospel. That's what Timothy was to do. Not just be not ashamed or unashamed. And certainly not ashamed of Paul. But he must take his share of suffering for the gospel. Paul was suffering. He's in chains for the gospel. He said, this is why I suffer. Because I'm preaching the gospel. Because I was appointed to this. It was on account of the gospel. But notice, Paul isn't having a pity party. He's not in prison. I can only imagine how maybe some of us would be if we were in prison for the gospel. Paul says, whose prisoner is he? Now, from the world's perspective, he's Caesar's prisoner, isn't he? He's in a Roman jail. He's in a dungeon, rotting in Rome, awaiting his execution by command of Caesar, by command of the Roman authorities. But he doesn't say he's Caesar's prisoner. He says, I'm the Lord's prisoner. He knew why he was there. He was there by command of Christ. He was there by appointment of Christ. He is the Lord's prisoner. What a towering figure he was. And he's chained up in there. Shivering and starving and cold. And lonely. <laughs> but he says, I'm the Lord's prisoner. This is why I'm suffering. For his sake. For his gospel. And he wasn't ashamed of it. 
Paul had a sound theology of suffering that you and I better recapture in our day, brothers and sisters. Suffering is part of the gospel. Do you know that? Suffering is part of the gospel. The gospel does not remove suffering. The Christian is not exempted from suffering for Christ. Despite what the false prosperity gospel teaches. Suffering goes hand in hand with the Christian life. To think different than that is to have a different gospel. John chapter 15. This is what Jesus says to his disciple, verses 18 and 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. There's a lot that Jesus says to his disciples there. But what does he say? He says, hey, I go before you in this. The world hates me. Think about that. The next time you think the world loves Jesus. They love Oprah Jesus. They love love your neighbor Jesus, hippie Jesus. Peace sign throwing Jesus. Meek and mild Jesus. But the world hates the real Jesus. Hates the real teachings of Jesus Christ. And because they hate Christ, anyone who proclaims Christ, the real Christ, will also be hated by the world. But Christians who are tripping up all over themselves to be loved by the world, to be embraced by the world, Jesus said, they're not of me, they're actually of the world. That's why the world loves them. This is not a license to be a jerk. This is not a license to just go out there to be offensive for offense's sake. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they've done that to our Lord, if they feel that way to our Lord, brothers and sisters, they're going to feel that way for his true disciples and followers. Paul, encouraging the church at Philippi in Philippians 1.29, writes, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also what? Suffer for his sake. Well, who has granted them that suffering? Yeah. (laughs) It's from the Lord. It's from the Lord. For the sake of Christ. It's not only to believe in Jesus. That's not all you're going to experience in the Christian life. But suffering for his sake. It is our high And holy privilege, brothers and sisters, to share and partake in the sufferings of our Lord. When Paul was called by the Lord on that Damascus Road experience, and he's in blindness at a house, the Lord summons one of his prophets, Ananias, to go and, and, and prophesy the word of the Lord to Paul, to show him what was to come. And this is what the Lord tells him, for I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now think about that. First words to Paul. Here's why I've called you. You're going to suffer much for our sake. 
for my sake. How many of us would follow Christ if those were the first words we hear? How many of us would have responded to an altar call like we did 10 million times maybe in our past, right? Come and accept Jesus. Get your fire escape ticket. Whatever the call was, come and suffer for Jesus Christ. How many of us would respond to that? How many of us would run to the altar with tears streaming in our eyes? That's what Paul was appointed to. But it was also the call of every believer. What is it about the gospel that stirs up so much hatred and opposition? That those who oppose the gospel, those who hate the gospel, would seek to harm the messengers of the gospel. What is it about the message? Well, again, depending on the message you're bringing... If you're presenting a robust gospel, if your gospel is more than just God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, you're going to have a different response many times. What is it about the message? It's simply this. In the true gospel, the gospel proclaims that God saves sinners of His own purpose, of His own grace, and not on any human merit or good work. That those who who persist in, in their resistance and animosity to the gospel hate that message because it speaks of human depravity, of sin and guilt, and man's obligation and debt to God because of their sinful state and rebellion. They don't like the teaching that one day they will be called to account before a holy God and face judgment. They hate that message. The gospel and the preaching of the cross is a stumbling block to many. So if you take an unashamed stance for Christ, an unashamed stance for the gospel of Jesus Christ, persecution and suffering is inevitable. It's been the case throughout the history of the church. It's the case right now in many parts of the world. And you and I, brothers and sisters are going to be experiencing that to a greater degree in the days ahead of us. You cannot proclaim a faithful gospel and escape opposition and persecution and the suffering that will come from that. So embrace it. Receive it. It is from the Lord. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It is not a sign of His displeasure, His disfavor, Or that he's removed himself for us. Or that he doesn't love us. Or that he's not for us. We're just following in the steps of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world hates him. They'll hate us also. If they persecuted him. They will persecute us also. If they have caused the suffering of his saints. Throughout the history of the church. Then we embrace it. Because we are of Christ. I think of. You might do this as well. But I follow a lot of. uh, uh, YouTube channels from uh, uh, abortion abolitionists and, and street evangelists. And I just get charged up uh, for the courage. Now, again, some of them, maybe they don't do it the way I would do it or say things the way I do it, but I, I applaud their courage. I, I applaud their courageous stands of Christ. And they're there, you know, proclaiming the gospel and warning people of the judgment to come. And some of the guys have signs there, hey, it's it's... It is not okay. It is murder to kill an unborn child. Repent and believe the gospel. And what do they find? Their interactions with people usually are not friendly. There is a lot of hostility. Usually it's someone who's just yelling and screaming. It's wild to watch how 
when, when they're confronted with their wickedness and vileness and depravity, what that stirs up in the unbeliever. I mean, they scream. It sounds demonic sometimes. Well, it is. Some of them do have demons. But their response isn't like, tell me more. It's cursing and just profanity after profanity and, and name-calling and slanders and insults and even threats of violence. Sometimes it does move into that realm. Taking a courageous stance for Christ means you will be opposed and persecuted. But now how can we endure suffering for the sake of the gospel? We can endure every suffering and persecution. Again, Paul says, how? It's the same way that one can walk unashamedly and exercise the gift of God. It is by the power of God. Brothers and sisters, we are weak and fragile vessels. When you think about that God chose the weak and foolish things of the world to confound the wise, He chooses frail humanity to proclaim this message. He chooses weak and fragile vessels. And you and I could easily choose a path that is one of comfort and ease. Like of our own. Don't we want to avoid suffering? We don't love suffering. Nobody's clamoring for suffering. Nobody's praying for suffering. Of our own, that's the path we would choose. But by God's power, by the indwelling spirit of God, right? we can endure every hardship and suffering for the cause of Christ. See, it's a seeming contradiction. But the glorious truth is that in Christ, by the Spirit, we are made strong through our weakness. That our weakness is not an obstacle to the power of God moving through His indwelling Spirit in the life of these weak and frail and broken vessels. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we we know this account of Paul. And he talks about the suffering and the affliction he's enduring and going through. And and look, he's not praying for that suffering to, to go on. He's asking the Lord to remove that affliction. And he keeps asking the Lord to do that. But the Lord tells him this in verses 9 and 10 of 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Look, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of God may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For When I am weak, then I'm strong. Then I'm strong. How do we have the strength to endure persecution and suffering and hardships? By the grace and power of our Lord. By the indwelling spirit of God. If you suffer for Christ and the gospel. You're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And you will receive all of the power of Christ to endure. Are you not moved when you hear the accounts and read the accounts of the martyrs of the church of Jesus Christ? Those who who stood without being bound to be burned at the stake. and, And they stood there singing songs of worship to the Lord and professing their their undying devotion and allegiance to Christ as those flames were consuming them? 
Those who would not recant their faith, recant their faith as they were about to be beheaded or strung up. How could that be? How could they do that? Only by the Spirit of God. Only by the power of God. And the only confidence you and I have that we will be able to endure when suffering comes our way for the cause of Christ and His gospel or persecution or some hardship is our trust and reliance and confidence not in our own strength because we are weak of ourself. Yeah, we'll recant. Of ourself, we will do everything to just to blend in and fit in so that we don't arouse some suspicion or call attention to ourselves or out ourselves as Christians. But we'll endure it. We'll endure it by the power of God for when we are weak, He is strong. I love the movement here in verse 9 and 10 because Paul in, 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 in talking about these duties in relation to the gospel that Timothy has and we have here, he now amplifies the, and magnifies the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ of which Timothy is to not be ashamed of and sharing suffering for it. Because that gospel is the grounds of our confidence. It is the grounds of our courage and duty to the gospel. It's the glorious gospel itself. And those two verses, oh man, it's... It's so dense and packed with such theological richness that I'm not even going to touch them today. I can't. I would not serve you well to to take a few minutes to unpack those verses. There's too much there. So we're going to come back next week to verses 9 and 10. And and we'll look at those in detail. But there's so much in this this, this powerful summation. I'm going to read it again just so we could see here what Paul says uh, to Timothy regarding this. So share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is so awesome. It is, so, it is so amazing. I'll tease you with just this. What is the gospel? We know the gospel is the good news. The good news of what? Paul says here, it's, it's God's saving purpose. Saving purpose. His saving purpose by grace alone through Christ alone. And that purpose and plan of God to bring salvation through His Son. When did He come up with that? He came up with that before time began. Before the world was even made. Before the foundation of the world. That purpose and plan of God was brought forth. Was materialized. That's why we always say salvation was not a reactionary plan. It was not God's plan B because man, oh, he rebelled and God's just kind of thrown for a loop. What do we do now? The father doesn't turn to the son and say, what now? No, no. No, no, no. He purposed and planned this from before the foundation of the world. And Christ's manifestation, His appearing, is the unfolding of that pre-existent eternal purpose in time to accomplish what was already determined before time. And what Christ has accomplished through His saving work was to abolish death. Was to abolish death and bring a certain qualitative, some type of life to those whom He saved, not just here, but also in the hereafter. It's a beautiful, 
beautiful summation of the gospel. A robust gospel in just a handful of lines. And the purpose of Paul's exalting in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is for Timothy to know that he has no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. He's got no reason to not want to share in suffering for Christ and his gospel and suffering for the sake of the gospel. Because look, Timothy, look what God has done. And if we would just catch a glimpse of what he has done for us in Christ, we wouldn't be ashamed either. We would embrace sharing in sufferings and following after the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like in all of Paul's letters, he provides in those two verses there the gospel supports for the command that he is giving here. We have a duty to the gospel because of what God has done for us in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when you embrace that, you'll have no cause for shame. And you'll joyfully share in suffering for the gospel. So we're going to come back to that gospel next week. We're going to blow those two verses up. So that we can understand them, embrace them, believe them, and let them transform us for the glory of God. So let's look at our last duty to the gospel. We have a duty to courageously stand for the gospel. We have a duty to share in suffering for the gospel. We also have a duty to faithfully keep the gospel. Verse 13, he says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now here this command to this duty to faithfully keep uh, the gospel is expressed by these two concepts. The first is that the gospel is both a pattern of sound words. And the gospel is also a good deposit. Pattern of sound words. A good deposit. Now, these are not new concepts to us. We saw them in First Timothy. Okay? And, and, and we saw through our study in the pastoral epistles that Paul uses a variety of words to refer to the same thing. The faith, the truth, the good deposit, right? All of these things are, are shorthand for the teachings of Christ and apostolic teaching. Okay? This is what he's referring to here. So the first thing to faithfully keep the gospel, is that the gospel must be followed. Follow the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me. They're sound words. They are healthy words. And they've been conveyed from Paul to Timothy. They are a pattern for Timothy to follow. They are a guide for Timothy. They are a rule. That word pattern is like sketch or or an outline, okay? A pattern that has been given to Timothy, which he must diligently follow. That means Timothy is not free to deviate from the pattern of the sound words. He is not free to add things to the pattern of the sound words. He's not free to change the outline of the pattern of the sound words here. He's not to take away from it. No, this apostolic pattern must be kept by every succeeding generation of The church. What does that tell us? It tells us that the gospel has not changed, brothers and sisters. It has not changed from that time to now. It's been transmitted from Christ to his apostles and from his apostles to the church. From Paul, now to Timothy. 
we're going to see. Paul shortly is going to tell Timothy, hey, what you've received from me, right? As apostle of Jesus Christ, I received from Christ. I've, you've given it to you. I've entrusted you with it. Now you entrust it to faithful men who will then entrust it to other faithful men. This is how this works. We're not free to reinterpret this thing. We're not free to change it, twist it, or give our own spin on it. We are not free to tweak it to make it less offensive or palatable to an unbelieving world. We must follow it closely and not deviate from it. It is our standard. It is our pattern for Christian faith and practice. There is no other gospel. There is no other gospel apart from this. Anything you hear out there on a podcast, on a YouTube short sermon clip, of which there are a million of those out there, or another Christian sharing from you, with you in the break room, and it deviates from the pattern of the sound words, you are to reject it. You are to discard it. You're not to follow it. Which means we need to know this for ourselves, don't we? We can only follow a pattern that we know of. A pattern that we've received and a pattern that we have studied and have been taught. Only those, that pattern of sound words contains the message of salvation through Christ alone. And note Paul's concern for the sound words, how the sound words must be followed. Just follow the pattern of the sound words you've received from me in what? The faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. It's not, he's not just concerned with what Timothy has to do, but the manner in how he's supposed to do it. In faith and love. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. His mode, his manner, his attitude is to be characterized by faith and love. That attitude with which Timothy maintained his practice of the sound words was almost as important as the sound words themselves. Think about this. How important, when we follow the pattern of the sound words, what does that produce in us? It shouldn't produce arrogance. We shouldn't be mean-spirited, bitter, hateful, divisive people. Jerks for Jesus. When we follow the pattern of the sound words and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Timothy was to be unashamed, bold, and courageous in gospel ministry, but he was also to be faithful to keep the gospel by following the gospel in love and faith. And you and I must do that as well. And when we, when we expand on the gospel next week, what those doctrines, what those teachings of grace do to us is produce humility, not arrogance. Gratitude and worship. It's not for head knowledge. It's transformative so that we can do this and follow it in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So to faithfully keep the gospel, we follow the pattern of the sound words, and we also, uh, to faithfully keep the gospel, we must guard the gospel. The gospel must be guarded. But the gospel is also a good deposit that must be guarded. And that's the same charge Paul gave to Timothy uh, at the close of his last letter. He said, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. But now he adds the adjective good. It's a good deposit. That adjective means beautiful, precious, priceless. It's a treasure. Guard 
the treasure of the gospel. It's a good gospel. It's a good deposit. Now that word guard means to not lose and, 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 or to not allow something to, to be damaged. And I think of it as like a security guard that is charged with, you know, guarding a priceless diamond. Maybe that's on display somewhere to, to make sure that no thief will break in and steal it. Or a soldier who's, who's at watch at, at the king's palace so that marauders won't come or thieves and robbers won't break in to steal the king's treasure. This is the idea conveyed by this. The gospel is a priceless treasure. It is an exceedingly precious treasure that has been deposited for safekeeping with the church. This has been entrusted to us, that's been passed down to us for safekeeping. It's precious. It is a treasure that you and I must must hold to like that. Keep it safe and guard it. Preserve it. It has been entrusted to us as it was entrusted to the apostles and to the early church and passed down to us. And Timothy must maintain a watchful eye on it. He must be on guard continually. Why? Because there were false teachers who were trying to infiltrate the church to rob the church of the priceless treasure which was entrusted to her. And that's what we do today. This treasure entrusted to us must be protected and guarded from wolves and heretics who would want to rob the church of her precious treasure. Think about the enormous pressure pressure this would have been on Timothy. What an enormous pressure that is hearing it for ourselves. This good deposit has been given to us, entrusted to us. What was Timothy to do? How was he to guard the gospel? How was he to follow the pattern of the sound words? Well, we know he couldn't do it on his own. We've already established that. Guess what? There's no new thing here. He tells Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That is all of the assurance that Paul needs to give Timothy here. The same way he's to exercise the gifts is the same way he is to guard the good deposit. Beautiful. By the power of God. Isn't that how the whole of the Christian life is to be lived, brothers and sisters? It's by the power of God. It's by the power of God. When we look at this next week, this aspect of how he's called us to a holy calling or to a holy life, how do we do that? It isn't just by sh- us trying to sheer, through sheer obedience to all of the commands of Scripture. That, uh, no, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we're sanctified. It's how we are conformed to Christ. It's how we do everything in the Christian life. It does not happen apart from the Holy Spirit and dependence on the Holy Spirit. It seems like a paradox that it's our duty to the gospel, yet it is by God's power alone that we can even succeed in fulfilling our duty to the gospel. Here's what you got to do, but here's how you're going to do it. I'm going to do it. Isn't that awesome? What great assurance this should give us. We are to be unashamed of the gospel, but we can only do it by the power of God. We're to share in suffering for the gospel, but we can only endure suffering by the power of God. We're entrusted to follow and guard the gospel, but we can only do that by the power of God. We are not left alone in this, brothers and sisters. God is with us. God is in us. God is for us. How can we do anything but succeed in this? 
We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to be afraid. We can share in suffering because God is with us. Here's what Paul discloses. We are entrusted with the gospel, yet it is God who actually does the keeping. He's going to take care of the good deposit himself. He's the ultimate guarantor of the gospel. And while he lays that charge at our feet, like he did there for Timothy, right? He has assumed the responsibility to preserve it, to ensure that it is faithfully transmitted. This is why I have no doubt that what's come to us today is the true gospel. Because God has seen to it that the true gospel be transmitted through the ages. Even through all that screwed up time of the church. And if you know anything of church history, there's a lot of that. A lot of heresy, a lot of distortions, a lot of wackiness. But yet today, that gospel that was entrusted there to those first apostles and passed down has come to us. And we know what we have. He says in verse 12, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This is Paul's confidence. Now he could be cowering in that prison cell wondering, will this whole gospel thing fall apart because of where he is? He, 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 could, he could be there in fear that all of his work and labor would have been in vain. There is no way the church is going to keep going. Here I am. In chains for Christ. And I'm not getting out of this one. There's no escape for me. I've already been sentenced to die. I'm just awaiting that moment. But he's not. He says here's my confidence. I am sure. I am sure. That what he entrusted to me. This good deposit. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is able to keep it. He is able to keep what has been entrusted. To guard until that day. What had been entrusted to me. He's entrusted that treasure to weak, frail, fallible creatures. Paul wrote that. He wrote that in 2 Corinthians. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's what we are. That's what he says all of the apostles were. Jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. There it is again, right? It is by the power of God. Because it is God who gets the credit. He gets the credit by using frail, weak men and women that he's entrusted this message to because he's going to ensure that everything he has purposed in the gospel, that he's entrusted to us, that he has not removed his hands from it. That he hasn't taken his eye off the ball. It's not all in our hands and God has just removed himself from the equation. Nope. No, he's going to ensure that the truth that he's entrusted to the saints, to his church, will be preserved. And that's the encouragement for us as the world grows darker. As you and I see more and more people apostatize from the faith. More and more walk away from Jesus Christ. More and more people renounce Jesus. And we see our faith continue to be marginalized and ridiculed. We need not be afraid. The light of the gospel will never, ever be extinguished. Because he is determined to preserve it. So in closing, our threefold duty to the gospel. To courageously stand for it. To share in suffering for it. And to faithfully keep it is only possible by the power of God.
by the Holy Spirit who indwells you. The Holy Spirit indwells you if you're in Christ, brothers and sisters. You get that. How often in our Christian walk and faith do we think we are alone? We're never alone. Not for one moment. There's not a second of your day in Christ that you are alone and left to your own. The Holy Spirit indwells you, believer. The Holy Spirit indwells you, brothers and sisters. And that is a mystery far beyond us to even comprehend. But it is a truth that is nonetheless declared in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the theme of this chapter, that charge to Timothy, our duty to the gospel is done with the help of the Holy Spirit. We cannot serve Christ and his gospel faithfully in our strength. It is by the continual reliance and dependence upon the Holy Spirit and his help. So if you've been ashamed of Christ and his words, ashamed of maybe his people, I encourage you to look to Christ, look to his gospel, and avail yourself of the power of God through the Holy Spirit. If you've sought to avoid suffering for the gospel, look to the example of your Lord, to his suffering, and avail yourself of the power of God to endure every hardship and suffering for the sake of Christ and his gospel. And if you feel overwhelmed at the thought of what has been entrusted to you in the gospel, entrusted so that you don't keep it to yourself, but that you herald it to others, look to Christ who sent his Holy Spirit to indwell every single person he redeemed by his blood, who gives us the power to faithfully keep it. Be encouraged. Our weaknesses and our weakness in fulfilling our duty to the gospel is the occasion for God to display his power in and through us by the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Do you know him whom you believe? Can you say that like Paul with that confidence and with that assurance that he's able to keep both you and he's able to keep what he's entrusted to the church until he comes again in glory? If so, you you and I can exclaim as Paul did in Ephesians chapter 3, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.